We had a very sweet um, funeral here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Yaiko Tanagawa uh, passed away at the age of 84. Uh, she and her husband, Mal, had been part of our church. It was a small funeral, largely just family and a few others. One visiting family member, a 90-year-old uh, from a church, uh, a 90-year-old elder from a church in South Carolina, uh, shared the funeral message and did a marvelous job expressing encouraging comfort and challenging faith for, for any present who may not know Christ. Interestingly, there were some distant family members here from Charlotte, and, and, and one of them privately expressed amazement that a 90-year-old would still believe this Christianity stuff. I suppose he thought by the time we grow up, we put these silly childish beliefs behind us. Our youngest son, senior at ECU, is a journalism major and the opinion editor for the school newspaper. While raised largely in this church, he has soundly rejected the Christian faith. Recently on his Facebook page, he invited fellow students who had fled organized religion to share their stories. He, he, he wants to write a column on their experiences. In the invitation, he noted the large numbers of those abandoning the faith, I suppose, after they uh, are out from their parents' influence and rules. Again, for him... The implication is once you grow up and become a thinking individual at a university, you leave these rather childish beliefs behind, kind of like Santa Claus. And yet in our study of Hebrews, the author has been encouraging continued faith. Keep believing. Keep living by faith until your dying breath. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when opposed and ridiculed, don't abandon the faith. Even if you don't receive the fullness of the promises in your lifetime, remember God's faithfulness is not dependent on fulfilling all of his promises in your lifetime. That's a tough pill to swallow, but fulfill them, he will. So keep believing. In chapter 11, he's giving us a long list of people who, uh, of the past who faithfully persevered uh, despite the opposition, despite not receiving the promises. Like you to this point. And not in his fullness. So a few weeks ago, we began looking at Abraham and Sarah, whose long story is found in Genesis 12 to 25. By the way, Abraham is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament figure, some 74 times. And so the author gives uh, them a lot of attention from Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 19 more than any other. In, in, in the first few verses that we looked at, we saw Abraham believed when God called him to go to a land that he would show him. So Abraham left, even though he didn't know where he was going, even though he remained a foreigner in the land of promise until the very day he died living in tents. He, he never received a foot of it except for the family burial plot that he purchased. 
further. He believed when God said he would be a great nation and with descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea and stars in the sky. He and Sarah both believed when God said they would have a son, even though barren Sarah was past the age of childbearing and Abraham was as good as dead. They believed. They lived by faith. And sure enough, they, they did live to see the fulfillment of that promise. When Abraham was 100, Sarah 91, old people believing. They had their one son, their only son, Isaac. By the way, one of the things that you should know is that God's revelation to Abraham was progressive. What do I, what do I mean by that? It, it's over time. He didn't give it to him all at once. He revealed a little at a time, oh, uh, a little more and more. He didn't tell um, a Abraham everything at once. He was building, you see, Abraham's faith. For example, I, I made a little chart for you. In Genesis 12, while still in Ur of the Chaldees and perhaps Haran, uh, God promised to make Abraham a great nation, but he did not tell him how. In fact, there's no mention of any offspring there. Later in Genesis 12, upon arriving in Canaan, God promised to give Abraham offspring, but he does not tell him how. Uh, in Genesis 13, God gave uh, Abraham the extent of the, offer, uh, of the offspring as the dust of the earth. You didn't know that one. Did the dust of the earth. Have you ever vacuumed? In Genesis 15, at the Abrahamic covenant, God tells Abraham for the first time the offspring would come from his own body. Of course, that's why in Genesis 16, while Sarah was still barren, Abraham had a son named Ishmael through Hagar. We'll come back to that. But you see, that was not God's plan. In Genesis 17, at the covenant of circumcision, we're told you know, for the very first time, this is the first time we hear it, that the offspring would also come from Sarah, not Hagar. <laughs> Finally, in Genesis 18, the promise is revealed to Sarah that she would bear a son. She laughed. But let's not be too hard on Sarah. Abraham laughed in chapter 17 when he was told the same news. So God said, name the boy Isaac. Laughter. So that you'll remember. Every time you call his name, come here, laughter. You'll remember. This was impossible. But I made it happen. Don't miss how many years it took for the promise to be fulfilled. From about the age of 70 to 75 to age 100, when the son of promise was finally born. My, pro uh, my point, about 25 to 30 years from the promise to its fulfillment. And then that was just the promise of a son. I mean, it took hundreds of years for the other promises, the, the great nation and the land, to be fulfilled. And it's taken a couple, it took a couple thousand years for the promise of a descendant of Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world, which, by the way, is still going on 2,000 years after that. A couple thousand years until the first Christmas when Jesus was born. Still believe in this, are you? That was the point of the second section regarding Abraham in Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But they all died believing the promises, though never receiving them. Even though they, they, they lived for over 100 years to be old people. They apparently never wised up and abandoned these foolish childhood beliefs. 
As a result, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a city for them. We, we haven't seen it yet either. We, we haven't seen Jesus yet, but we believe, and we will. Brings us to our text this morning. The reason that I review all of those offspring promises leading to that one son of promise, Isaac, is because of what God required of this man of faith after Isaac was born. It's rather troubling. Look at it with me. Hebrews 11 verse 17 says, But by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he, Abraham, to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Does that bother anybody? I do not mind telling you that if there is any one story in the Bible which has caused me personal challenge through the years, it is this one. How, how could God command Abraham to sac sacrifice his son? E even if God knew he was going to stop Abraham from doing it, how could God do that? Isn't that evil? What do, what do we do with this? I'll try to explain that as we close a little later. As we approach this story, as much as is possible, would you put yourself in Abraham's sandals? You, you know this is a test. I mean, you know how it ends. Some of, the, uh, some of you know the story so well, you can stand where I stand and teach it. But for the next few moments, forget what you know. Forget this is a test. Forget you know how the story ends. Try to imagine the, the, the thoughts, the emotions, the anguish, the doubt, the despair that Abraham no doubt experienced throughout this entire ordeal. Think of your own son, your own daughter. W would you have obeyed like Abraham did? And then very quickly you would say, well, no, because God would never command that. But he did. He did. Would you, come, would you have come up with all kinds of reasons not to obey? As if you know better than God? Now, to be clear, if you have a dream tonight to kill one of your children, maybe they wrecked the car, don't do it. I do not believe that God would tell you to do, to do that. But he did. What do we do with this? Are we so familiar with the story that we just slip right over it? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. God had called him decades ago to go to a country that he would, that he would be shown. Abraham obeyed and, and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Hey, good for you, Abraham. 
God promised he would make Abraham a great nation, even though at first he didn't tell Abraham how he was going to do it. Descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand. And in Genesis 15, Abraham complained a bit, are my descendants going to come through one of my servants? This was the cultural practice of the day. Through one of my servants to carry on my name in my household? No, Abraham, from your own body, one will come. Really? Because I'm like really old now. Look at the stars, Abraham. That's how many your descendants will be from your own body. And Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. So then he waits for a few years. He listened to his wife, Sarah, who suggested he fathers uh, children through her handmaid, um, Hagar. After all, it's obvious she's not going to have any children. And, and so without consulting God, Abraham fathers a child uh, uh, named Ishmael through Hagar. And for 13 wonderful years, Abraham thinks, hey, this is it. Uh, I'll have lots of descendants through Ishmael. God did it. But God said no. The son of promise will not come from her. It will not be Ishmael. The son of promise will come from Sarah. Really? I'm like, she's really old now. Then God tells Sarah, this time next year you will have a son. And God made it clear that through this son, this one, Isaac, he would fulfill the promises. Incredibly, just as God promised, Isaac is born. Can you imagine the incredible, unbelievable joy, the laughter in the tent? A couple of weeks ago, we saw in Hebrews 6 that Abraham patiently waited, received the promise of a son. Patiently waited? Well, yeah. I mean, it took 30 years. Abraham again, 100, Sarah 91. But the promise was fulfilled because God had promised and he had sworn by himself. And he's a God who can't lie. So he did it. And look at the first couple of verses of Genesis 21, which record the birth of Isaac. And see if there's a point that's being made here. And then the Lord took note of Sarah and as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. It seems clear, doesn't it? God did it. He fulfilled his promise just like he said. All is well, right? Now we can move the narrative forward. Isaac can have children. A nation can be born. They can finally settle in the land. And, and the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed can come. Everyone lives happily ever after, right? Not so fast. God is not quite done perfecting, maturing Abraham's faith. And we read the story and its familiarity, and perhaps it doesn't hit us like it should. Look at it with me, Genesis 22. Came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. You see, he'd been listening to God's voice for, for decades now. He recognized it. This was God. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer them him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Here we, here we go again. Only this time, it's not just go to a land I'll show you. It would go to a mountain I'll show you and kill your son. Really. Take your son, your only son, the one you love. God is making sure Abraham understands which son to sacrifice. There could be no hunting for Ishmael, who by this time had been sent away. Nope. Take the son, the one you love, just in case there's any confusion. His name's Isaac. 
and kill him. What would you have done? Is this troubling to you? I'll be honest, it is to me. Now notice this is a test. We know that, right? We, we know how the story ends. Abraham knew neither that it was a test nor that how it would end. But, but, but here's a question. For whom was this a test? I mean, is God unsure of the outcome? Is there some chance that Abraham will disobey and, and, and God's not sure? And so he devises this to give Abraham a, a test to see what he's going to do? You know, what are you, what's, it, what's Abraham going to do? Instead of having to kind of wonder, wring my hand. No, I don't think that's it. To be sure, I think it was a test. In fact, you could think of it as a final exam. You see, because God has been testing and thereby perfecting Abraham's faith for decades now. Will you believe me and move to Canaan? Yeah, got it, check. Pass. Will you believe this land is yours? Yep. Will you believe that I will make you into a great nation? A little harder. Will you believe that you have descendants as numerous as the sands and the stars? Will you believe that you and Sarah will have a son? God has been testing and thereby perfecting, maturing Abraham's faith for a very long time. And it's time for the final exam. Well, I would suggest that he does the same thing for us. Not because he's unsure of the outcome, but to refine us, to mature us, to make our faith as pure as finest gold. He's trying to help you. Consider 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while if necessary you've been distressed by various trials. I would call this a various trial. So that, here's why he does it. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and and, and full of glory, (laughs) obtaining the outcome of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. God clearly Peter says, tests us so that he might refine us, mature us, purify us, proving the reality of our faith. To who? To, to whom? To us. He knows those who are his. By which faith we receive its outcome, the salvation of our souls. Is he unsure of the outcome? No. He is just making sure that we know. Back to Genesis 22, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice two things. First of all, there was no delay. Got up early in the morning. Notice secondly, there is no indication that he told Sarah what he was doing. Smart man. Third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now, while the text does not say, can you imagine the angst of his soul for three days as he made his way toward the mountain God identified, perhaps waiting for God to say, just kidding. That's enough. God does not, so onward he goes. 
each step becoming more heavy. Abraham said to his young men, so stay here with the donkey, I and the lad will go over there and we'll worship. (laughs) Worship? And, And return to you. It is amazing that he calls this an act of worship. Because you see, it is. Any act of obedience, no matter how difficult, is an act of worship. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac's son, took his hand, fire, and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, said, Hey, Dad. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Don't let the familiarity rob you of the the extent of this passage. Don't miss that Abraham expected a lamb to be provided. He came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, ranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What would you have done? But God, but he did. It's the event to which Hebrews refers. This is incredible, unbelievable faith. Recall all of the promises uh, which have been made to Abraham for, for decades. And the Genesis narrative is clear. It is through Isaac that all of these promises that I have been making will be met. He is the son of promise. Now take and sacrifice. Kill him. And, it, and Hebrews, the Hebrews text summarizes Abraham's response. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. That's it. Stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. The son of promise. He who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. You must understand from a human perspective, the command contradicted the promise. Has that ever happened for you? Verse 18 says, It was he, Abraham, of whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Abraham understood the promise, and he also understood the command. And as far as he was concerned, this was God's problem. Apart from knowing the rest of the story, this would make no sense to us. And I would suggest that some of the most difficult times that you will ever face in your life are tests of faith that you don't understand. But live by faith. We will. Even when the command and the promise seem to contradict. So since this was God's problem, how did Abraham reconcile it in his own mind? Verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. How did he know that? Well, he'd seen God, in a sense, raise his own dead body and Sarah's dead body um, from the dead, create life out of death. And, and, and by the way, this assuming 
that God would raise Isaac from the dead is seen in the Genesis account. Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over, we'll worship, and we will come back. This is God's problem. Are there things in your life about what you need to say, God, this is your problem? To obey will certainly bring me pain and sorrow, especially as it relates to my kids. I've got one. But I will obey, and I will leave the consequences to God. One author writes, when Abraham obeyed God's mandate to leave Ur, he simply gave up his past. But when he was summoned to Mount Moriah to, look, to deliver his own son to God, he was asked to surrender his future as well. It's what he asks of us, to give him our past and our present and our future. He wants it all even when you don't understand. You likely know the rest of the story. Look at Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's not as if he didn't know, again, strengthening Abraham's faith. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, uh, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the lamb offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Can you imagine being Isaac? Tie him up, lay him on the, raise the knife. He probably needed therapy the rest of his life. As we close, what do we do with this command? Does it bother anybody? This command by God for Abraham to sacrifice his son is a burnt offering. Some of you might say, well, he, he didn't let Abraham go through with it, so that was okay. So let's query a little further. Is it okay for God to command us to do something evil as long as he doesn't let us do it? Just kidding. I would remind you of a couple of things. First, most will quote Leviticus 18, which is a prohibition against sacrificing children to Molech. Molech is a false god. Yahweh is not. Second, we must also remember James 1 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. The idea he does not tempt anyone with evil. So is it possible to sacrifice a son and not be evil? Be very careful how you answer. True, he didn't allow it. But if he had, would it have been right? I would suggest to you that God will not be judged by us, his fallen creatures. Everything he does is right, and we have neither the authority nor the moral character to judge the God of the universe.
And the last thing that I would say is this. Do not be too hard on God calling someone to sacrifice his one and only son, the one he loves. Because if you are opposed to that, you are opposed to the gospel. Because this is exactly what God did for us. He called for the sacrifice of his own son. The difference? He did not stop the soldiers from dry, after having raised the hammer from driving the nails into his son's hands and feet. He did not stop the soldier from piercing his side. His son died. Sacrifice of atonement for us. Which is what the end of verse 19 says. From which he, Abraham, received him, Isaac, back as a type. The word is literally parable. The point is, this story of the sacrifice of Isaac is a type, a parable pointing to the reality of the sacrifice of God's only begotten son named Jesus. I find it interesting. I thought about this this week. That I find it interesting that I'm so bothered by this story. Perhaps because I personalize it, and I and I and I think about uh, my own son. Would I I do that? And yet I have I become so familiar with the story of God offering His own Son that it ceases to bother me. I want to be careful about making comparisons, types that are not intended, but some rather are, are rather obvious. Consider these striking parallels. God had only one begotten son whom he loved. This son was sacrificed as an offering to God. You see, burnt offerings were offerings for sin. So also the offering of Christ on the cross was for sins, not his, but ours. Notice the three days that it took Abraham and Isaac to get to the mountain. So also was Jesus dead for three days before God received him back. Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice Jesus, just as Jesus would bear his own cross. The story of Isaac has a substitutionary sacrificial ram who would take Isaac's place. Jesus, however, would have no substitute. He would become the substitute, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So if you struggle with the story as I occasionally do, remember that it is a type pointing to the one to come. And my prayer has been that the death of Christ would bother me as much as the potential death of Isaac. In fact, one author suggests that in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad as a reference to this story. He saw the day of Jesus in parable form. I want you to understand that this story, as difficult as it is, is the story of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ.